Good morning, Emmanuel Church family. Are you glad you're here this morning? All right. I got to tell you, I'm glad to be here. Uh, Jill and I uh, were up here last week, and we came back this week, and so I will be looking for that free Chick-fil-A milkshake coupon in the mail soon. So uh, second week, that's why we're here, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, we are, we are wrapping up our series called Imperfect Family, and we have been talking about how God does not, God knows that there's no way in the world we can have a perfect family because we are not perfect. Last week, we talked about how to have a marriage that doesn't just survive, but one that thrives. And we learned that we need to do that by honoring our spouse, enjoying our spouse, and prioritizing our spouse. And today, we're talking about how can we have a family that doesn't just survive, but one that thrives. And so if you are married with kids, I want you to raise your hand right now, all right? If, keep your hands up, all right? If you are not married, but you have kids, raise your hands. Add to that, okay? If you aren't married, don't have kids, and don't ever want to have kids, raise your hand, all right? All right, if, all right, put your hands down. Good. That's a morning workout, so you're done. Check that off your list. If you are a kid, like you had one point in your life had a parent at some point in time, raise your hand, okay? That's all of us because I believe that today we're going to have a message that specifically talks about how we can have a family that doesn't just thrive, but one that doesn't just survive, but one that thrives. But there's going to be some principles and some truths that we can apply anywhere in our life because they come directly from God's Word. And I believe that all God's words are true and they're all good for us. So whether you're here today and you're a parent and you're right in the middle of it, or maybe you're a single parent and you're going through a lot of stuff, or maybe you uh, are not a parent, um, I believe that God has something for us. I'm going to ask you to do something they don't normally do in church. I want you to take out your cell phone or your iPad or your, your tablet or device that you have, okay? I want you to take it out, and I want you to find a picture of some kids, okay? If you're a parent, man, you got them everywhere, right? They're all over the place. But if you're a teacher, you probably got a picture of your class. If you're a coach, you probably got a picture of your, of your team that's, that's up there. And, and, and just kind of take a look at the picture that's in front of you. Because here's what I want you to do. Today, as we are talking about how we can be families that thrive and not just survive, these are the people that I want you to have in the front of your mind. Okay, These are the people that I want you to be thinking about as we move through uh, what we're going to be doing um, today. And it's super important that we do that. Now, let me tell you something. Just recently, I realized that I suffer from a syndrome called stock family syndrome. You see, I went to the store to buy picture frames, okay? And so I looked and I found the right size picture frame that we have. And then after I found the picture frame, I started to look at the picture of the people in here. And I'm like... That is a good-looking family right there. I mean, look, that little girl loves her mommy and that boy. He, just, he wants to be just like his dad. I mean, look at them. They have perfect teeth. They have perfect hair. I'm just going, what a family. And I started to think about, man, that family must be so happy. I'll bet their life is perfect. They wake up every morning looking just like that, okay? And my family doesn't look at all like that. In fact, a couple of years ago, we went to Washington, D.C. on spring break. And here's a picture of my kids at the end of the day of spring break. How's that look? And I need to tell you, that took me about 10 minutes of warning and threatening and, uh, and bribing them with ice cream just to get that look, okay? When I look at that, I, I suffer because I, I, my family doesn't look like this. Anybody else suffer from stock family syndrome? Oh, it gets worse though, right? Because I know 
This is probably not even a real family. This is something called stock photography where they go on the internet, you know, and they go, oh, we need a good-looking family with teeth and everything. And they, 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 they get their picture here. They are not even, they are probably actors and actresses that aren't even related who are paid because they're good-looking and they have a perfect smile, okay? And yet, I tend to look at that and go, I want to be like that family because my family is, is so the opposite of that. And I think all of us struggle at times. We take a look at other families that we see around our community or other families that we see around church and we say, well, if my family could just be like their family, they seem to have it all together. And the one truth that I know is true, there's no such thing as a perfect family. Would you agree with that? Yeah, we would. In fact, there's not even such thing as a family having a perfect day. Wouldn't you like to just have one day where like, hey, no fatalities. All right. You know, we, we, we would like to be. I can remember. I don't know if, if you're like me. I can remember the exact moment when I when I came to the understanding that I was not going to be a perfect parent. Uh, our, our Jill and I, our firstborn child, Monica, was born, and um, after about two weeks, Jill decided it was time for her to, to go out, and uh, some of the staff wives from our church were get, having a little get-together, and she was going to go with them for two or three hours, and leave me at home with our two-week-old baby, Monica, okay? And I was like, hey, no problem. You know, I can do this. I'm a dad. You know, I read the book. You know, all that kind of stuff. I'm, I can improvise. And so I can remember holding Monica like a football in my arm and, and having this conversation before Jill left. I said, hey, now, your mom's going to be leaving for a few hours, but that's okay because you get me. It's going to be awesome, you know. We're going to do a lot of fun stuff. And so Jill kissed us both goodbye, and she walked out the door. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this experience before, but there is something that happens when a new mom walks out of the door with a newborn baby, right? I believe, this is my theory, there's something with the pressure of the door closes that messes with the inner ear of this little infant baby because as soon as the door was closed, my sweet, precious little Monica just started screaming at the top of her lungs. And my first response as a perfect parent, which I read in a book, said, whoa, we had an agreement here, all right? We talked about this earlier. And she screamed and she screamed. And Jill wasn't even out the driveway yet, so I ran out to get Jill. No, I didn't run out to get Jill. I was going to show to her that I was a great dad. And so I started doing the things that I had seen Jill do whenever our baby started crying. So I started with the sway. All right, moms, you know what I mean? You got the sway going. That didn't work. So then you do the little, I don't know what that's called, the hippity hop thing, okay, where you just, gonna, this is kind of, right, we're doing that. That didn't work. So then I started doing the walking, you know, where you're walking, walking, and then you're talking like, come on, honey, it's going to be okay. You know, we had an agreement here. What's going on? And you're and walking back and forth with her, and I didn't know what to do, so I started making stuff up. But no, I'm kidding. I didn't, I did not do that, really. I, don't report me to child protection. I, did, I didn't do that. And so what seemed like hours later, but was actually like 30 minutes later, she was still screaming and crying. I had checked the diaper. I had tried. I, I had done it, but nothing. She could not be consoled. And so I had this thought. I said, you know, when I'm feeling kind of bad, I like to get something sweet, like ice cream, right? You know, but, but you can't give ice cream to a two-week-old baby, can you? That would be crazy. So I did the next best thing. I took her pacifier and just dipped it just a little bit into our sugar bowl. Just, just a little bit, all right? And I put it in her mouth and her eyes got wide. There was a smile bigger than a pacifier and I'm like, dad of the year, right here, buddy, you know? And I'm walking around and we had the best 15 or 20 minutes. She just was just, oh, 
like that. Well, all of a sudden, I guess the sugar went away or something because she started to cry again, and I went through the whole thing, you know. And I went to the whole, and finally I went and I dipped and put a little more sugar on that, and oh, eyes got big. Oh, and we just had um, pretty much this routine for the next almost three hours. Okay. So Jill comes home, and I'm holding our little baby who's just, you know. Doing great, not crying, hadn't cried all night, right? And um, she said, well, how'd it go? I go, oh, it was great. It couldn't be better. I said, but you know, honey, I have got an early meeting at church tomorrow, so I'm just going to let you take her. I'm going to go on to bed. So I went on to bed thinking, okay, I'm good, right? About 3 o'clock in the morning, I am shaken awake by my wife, who has glowing red eyes, who said, she used my middle name again, Michael Andrew? What have you done to our daughter? She will not go to sleep. She's hopped up on sugar or something. I'm like, really? Sugar? You think? I just, I, hmm, I don't know how that would happen, you know. But I realized at that moment that I would never be the perfect parent. And I think a lot of us, when we become parents or whenever we're around kids, we realize that we're not going to be perfect. And so our goal we want to talk through today is that we want to be able to be a family that thrives and not just survives. We want to be a family. So how can we have a family that thrives and not just survives? Well, if you're a parent and you've been around other parents, or if you're a teacher or if you're a coach, or maybe you're one of our wonderful children's volunteers back here in children's ministry, you get to interact with a lot of different parents. And you actually have realized that there are different types of parents. And on your note taker, you're going to see some, some lines there, and you can write down the different types of parents that we're going to kind of go through. The first type of parent is a parent that we like to call the helicopter parent, okay? A helicopter parent is one of those parents that's always just kind of hovering around. They're watching their child, and they are ready to swoop in and make an extraction at any time that there is a real or even perceived threat on their child's, not health or life, but just their well-being and where they are. They're always just kind of hovering around. But if you've ever experienced some of those helicopter parents, I don't know if you've ever seen the, uh, the, the helicopter parent that takes it to the next level. We call these the Black Hawk parents, okay? They are just like the helicopter parents, except they are armed to the teeth. It's DEFCON 5. They are ready to seek and destroy anything that gets in the way of their children. You ever know anybody like that? You ever know anybody like that? Yeah. You know, and so, in fact, for some of you, you didn't write down helicopter and Black Hawk. You wrote down, like, Mrs. Johnson. You know, like, you wrote down an actual name, right? You know? But, but, but then there's another type of parent that's kind of annoying, and it's a mosquito parent, okay? A mosquito parent, you know mosquitoes, they just kind of buzz in your ears all the time. They're super annoying, right? You can never just, like, get rid of them, you know? That's a parent. They're always just buzzing in the ears of whoever is around their kids, whether it's their teacher or their coach or whatever. So they just buzz, 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 and they are just annoying, right? Well, they don't hold a candle, to those who take this to another level. And we call them the lion parents, okay? They don't buzz. They roar, and they're always roaring about something. If my child doesn't get this, or if you don't let them do that, or I'm going to take this up to your supervisor, you know, they just are constantly roaring in your ears. Anybody had a mosquito or lion parent in your life before? Yeah. Well, then we have the parents that I like to call the lawnmower parents, 
okay? These are the parents that are looking ahead in their kids' lives, and they see where they feel like their kids should go, and they are ready to mow down any opposition to their kid. If their kid's on a ball team and they're not getting enough playing time, they're going to figure out a way to get their kid more playing time. They will mow down anything because they want to make the way smooth for them, but they are nowhere near the last type of parent, which we call the bulldozer parent, okay? They literally will move heaven and earth to see what they feel like their child deserves to get. And they are just there. How many of you have ever been around parents like this of one type or another? If you're not raising your hand, that means you are one of these, okay? So it's a good time to get it up there high, okay? Yeah. And so there's a lot of different parents. And I think part of the reason why we struggle with being a parent it's because we don't have a clear goal of what it means to be a parent. I mean, I think a lot of times whenever we're thinking about our kids, our goal is, well, we want our kids to be happy and healthy. Now, those are two pretty good goals. Or we say, we want them to be a hard worker and honest. Okay, those are pretty good goals. Or, or we may say, you know what, we want them to grow up someday where they can find a good spouse and have great kids. And those are good goals. But the problem is we don't set on a goal. I like what Chuck Swindoll says. He says the goal of parenting is to successfully hand off the baton of faith to the next generation. To successfully hand off the baton of faith to our children. You see, our goal as parents is to do that. And if we can do that, if we can teach them about the heart of their Heavenly Father and about the priorities of their Heavenly Father, then they're going to be in a pretty good place. They're going to be in a pretty good place. But the problem is we sometimes um, don't do that. In fact, we become way more concerned with what our children will do when they grow up than who they will become. Let me say that again because I think that's really important. We become more concerned about what our children will do when they grow up than who they will be when they become adults. Statistics tell us that the average adult will have between five and seven careers in their life. So I'm thinking that's six, okay? And so if you are... Part of the reason I'm in ministry is because I'm not great at math, okay? I'm just going to tell you. So. But, but if as a parent... If you are pushing your child in a certain direction, you know, you could be the next uh, quarterback for the Indianapolis culture. You could be the next great doctor who's, and you push them in that direction. At some point in time, either by their choice or life's choice, they decide that's not what they want to do. As a parent, you feel like a failure. Well, but this is what we've been working for. We had you on traveling teams. Do you know how much money I spent traveling? We had you in AP classes so that you could get here, and now you're going to walk away from all that? Because if we are more concerned about what our children can do, we're going to be disappointed. But the truth is, if we make it our goal to build into our children the character of their Heavenly Father, it doesn't matter what they do, they're going to be doing the right thing. They can change careers they can experience hard times and good times, but because they have a relationship with God and they have the foundation to build on, they're going to be okay. And that's a major shift because every single parent believes that their kid is going to be the absolute best at something in the world. And the truth is, most of our kids are just like us, really nice, great, average people, right? It's the truth. And so we have to make sure that we don't just get consumed with what they do, but who they become. 
In the 1980s, we saw some shifts in the way that families were in America. Up until that point in time, most parents felt like if their children went to bed with a full stomach in their own home and they had clean clothes to wear to school the next day, that they were pretty successful as a parent. In fact, their main goal was to just pass on um, their core values to their children. But in 1980s, there was a couple of things that happened in America that radically changed the landscape of our families. The first one was the rise of divorce in America. For the first time, there became a lot of single parents. And and I have never been a single parent, but I can only imagine how hard that is. But one of the things that can happen in single-parent homes is that when there are children in the home, that parent will tend to elevate the child to a level they were never intended to be. The child moves from being, the boy moves from being son to being buddy. The, the girl goes from being my little princess to being, hey, young lady. And they're elevated to, to, to that level. Or sometimes they become friends. I mean, have you ever seen uh, a parent that wants to be friends with their kids when they're way too young? I mean, there's nothing more sad than seeing a, 14, uh, a 40-year-old single mom trying to dress just like her 14-year-old daughter. I mean, she's just trying to be friends. She's, trying to, she's looking for a friend, and here's one in her home, so, so they elevate, and, and they can do that. Or even worse, they can elevate them to adult status where the child's um, decisions and priorities have equal weight to that parent. And that radically changed the landscape of families in America. But the second thing was that there were some advances in the, in, in the medical field, especially in the areas of infertility. And, and Jill and I struggled with this. Our first pregnancy, we thought you'd just get married and have kids. And our first um, pregnancy, um, five days before our due date, we went to the doctor. The doctor said, I'm sorry, there's no heartbeat. And Jill delivered a full-term stillborn baby. And our hearts were broken. But, but, but during the 1980s and the 90s, there were some advancements in that. And so Jill and I began to go and, uh, and do testing and go to doctors and, and be able to figure out how we could do this. And when we decided we were ready again to try to have children, we gathered together all of our family, all of our friends, and our small group. And we said, guys, we want to try to have a child. Will you pray for us? And they did. They prayed. And then within a few months, we found out that we were pregnant. We were so excited. And we went back to that same group and said, guys, we're pregnant. We need you to pray twice as much now. And so everybody that you know and love is praying like crazy that God will help. What used to be just a hope to have a kid, now you got a little peanut in there and, and praying that God will deliver. And then that day comes when the child is born, and it's a miracle of God, isn't it? The life that he gives. And as parents, we struggled. And it's a struggle that we had is called miracle baby syndrome. I know there's a lot of people in this room that struggle with infertility. And if you've ever had that experience where you couldn't have children, then God blesses you with children, either naturally or through adoption or foster. You get that child. You want to just put your arms around them and never let go, don't you? You want to protect them so fiercely that nothing negative can ever get to them. And we start to suffer from miracle baby syndrome. And it's one that places kids in a place that's not um, very good for them. So if we're going to have a family that thrives and not just survives, I think we need to know what are some of the signs of having a family where children get elevated to an unhealthy place. Or the common term is called child-centered families. Well, the first indicator of this is that we create situations where your child will succeed rather than preparing them for situations they can control. We create situations where our child can always be a success rather than preparing them for situations they cannot control. 
few years ago, I was sitting um, at one of my kids' kindergarten graduations, okay? Now, I didn't know kindergarten graduation was a thing, okay? Like, when I was in kindergarten, they sent my report card home on the last day of school. My mom opened it and said, okay, you graduated. You're going to first grade. That was the extent of our um, graduation. But we're sitting at this kindergarten graduation, and everybody's crammed into this kind of gym slash cafeteria room, you know, that still smells like fish sticks somehow. You know what I mean? It's, it's got this, you know what I'm talking about. It's that same smell every day, no matter what the menu is. And we're sitting there, and each teacher in kindergarten would get up, and they would call the name of their children, and they would give them some award. And so, you know, the first child would get up, and they would say, oh, the, this child wins our spelling award. And all the parents would go, yay. And there's a one parent going, wow! Like, your kid? Yeah, okay. And... Uh, you know, you, you don't feel that way until it's your kid, and then you're up there going, Wah! right? And they, they, they gave the math award, and then they give the, the reading award, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's good. And then the, the next word they said, and, and the next word we get is a certificate of participation. And I went, my wife was a teacher, so I leaned over to her because I knew this was probably something new, and I said, what is certificate of participation? She said, that means a kid came to school. I go, Really? I mean, that's where we are because the truth is when you're in kindergarten, you don't have a choice. Who should get that award? The parents, right? We're the one that brought them to school. But it sets them up for, up for an unrealistic expectation. I mean, those of you that work, what would have happened Friday if your boss came in and goes, hey, guess what today is? It's Friday. You made it to work every single day this week. Woo! Here's your certificate of participation. Put that right up there on your cubicle wall. You know what? I'm so proud of you. We're going to go get ice cream. <laughs> but yet we do that to our kids all the time. Now, there is value in celebrating wins and celebrating things, but we set our kids up in situations where they can only succeed. And we don't prepare them for situations they cannot control. And the truth is, our kids are going to fail. Our kids are going to blow it. You know why? Because they're just like their mom and dad, right? We fail and we blow it all the time. And so it's important for that. But let me tell you something. I believe that what our kids and what we learn through our failures make us who we are. You think about your darkest day. You think about your darkest season. It shaped who you are. And why as parents do we want to protect our kids from their character building times where they can become who God has intended them to be by shielding them off from everything? A second, second indicator that we have a child-centered home is that we accelerate childhood milestones and we delay adolescent ones. A few weeks ago, I was talking to a, a guy who uh, just had his first son and he was excitedly telling me that his son was born with a front tooth. And the more he talked, the more I realized that this dad believed that his son's ability to grow teeth before he was born equated to a probably superior IQ to anyone ever in the history of mankind. And so he's talking about it. And the longer he's talking, my brain starts wandering, which happens quite a bit. Just ask my wife. And I start to think, I go, 
wow, so this kid's tooth was halfway in when he was born. By the time he's in middle school, his teeth are going to be like this long. I go, and I start feeling sorry for the kid, because can you imagine the nicknames he's going to have in middle school? I mean, he's going to get the stew beat out of him in PE every day in middle school. So while his dad's talking about his kid as this gifted kid, I'm thinking, poor kid, you know? But we accelerate childhood milestones. Parents will brag, yeah, you know, well, my child started to walk when it was six months old. Wow, okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, my child knew three languages by their first birthday. Did they? Okay. You know, yeah, my child knows how to ride a unicycle. You know, I, yeah, we, we, we want to push them. We want to we get them as, as, as advanced as we can. And uh, do you remember those commercials they had on TV years ago called My Baby Can Read? And I remember those, and I remember sitting there thinking, going, your baby can read. Your baby can't talk. How do you know your baby can read? You know, I, I thought it was just a gimmick. My philosophy on raising kids is not my baby can read. My philosophy is Chuck E. Cheese, okay? Chuck E. Cheese is what? The place where a kid can be a kid, right? We have to allow our kids to be able to, to advance. Now, we need to, to gently nudge and push, but you see some of those parents that they are always just trying to get um, their kids in, in the best place. And the thing about a child-centered home is we never see it. It's a blind spot. We never see it, but everybody around us can see it. You know, whenever, whenever your family is mentioned, they always go, oh, like that. You know what I mean? Uh, it's a blind spot um, to us. So how do we avoid this? <clears throat> how do we avoid having a, a family um, where it's the children are at the center and in, a, in a place they're not intended to be? Well, I think there's three things that we have to do. The first thing is we have to realize as parents, it starts with us. Galatians chapter 6, verses 3 through 5 gives us a good indicator of what this looks like because it says, right here it says, if anyone thinks he is important when he is really not, he's only fooling himself. Each person should judge his own actions and not compare himself with others. Then he can be proud for what he himself has done, and each person must be responsible for himself. Do you see what that says? When we're in the terms of spiritual growth, we are responsible for our own spiritual growth. When you're a kid, your mom and dad bring you to church and let the professional Christians teach you about Jesus, right? But as an adult, it's on you. Your mom's not going to call you on Sunday morning or text you and say, "Hey, it's time to get to church." You know, you got to get there by nine o'clock to get a good parking place. You know, because church starts in fifteen minutes. No, it's on us, and so we have to make sure that. It starts with us. We have to be growing spiritually, but also we set the spiritual temperature of our homes. Moms and dads, you are the spiritual thermostats in your homes. Your kids have a front row seat to watching if what you say you believe is really what you believe. And so we have to make sure that we're growing. But it doesn't only include us because there will come a time very soon in your child's life where they will start to listen to other people. And so we have to invite and we have to surround our children with other trusted adults. Those of you that have kids in the children's ministry, do you know while you're in here right now, there are dozens if not hundreds of volunteers back there that are loving on your children they love your kids, not because your kids have done anything for them, because they love kids, and they are teaching them about God's love. And you know what? They are not the only ones who can do that. If, you just get one, if they get one hour a week 
it's not enough. They need to see it in you. And so we have to remember that it starts with you. The second thing, and this one's a little crazy, uh, the way the spacing is on your note taker. But the second thing is, is that we have to protect the proper family order. Protect the proper family order. You see, all the way back in Ephesians chapter 5, God gives us what the first order says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The marriage relationship is the, the closest relationship that we have on this earth to what our relationship with God should be. It is the highest level of relationship that God gives us. And then several verses down, it finally mentions kids in chapter 6 verse 1. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. God set it up to where mom and dad are the leaders of the family and the kids are way down here, the obeyers in the family because they're being taught. And when we get it twisted, when we get it turned around, when we start to, to, to raise kids up to a level that God never intended, it can get pretty bad because kids think they run the world. Kids think the world revolves around them and then the first time they strike out on their own, they don't know what to do. Jill and I say that our goal is not to raise our kids so they can go out into the world and become adults. Our goal is to raise our kids to be adults who go out into the world and change it. And there's a big difference in that. And you know, sometimes, well, there's a phenomenon happening in America right now. A couple years ago, we, we passed a milestone that was not great. For the first time in the history of America, there are more people over the age of 50 that are divorced than who are widowed. And I believe one of the major factors of that is because they have moved their children to an unhealthy place. They fell in love, romance took over, reality set in, they had kids during those rearing years, and when they should be entering into the reward season of their marriage, they look across the table after the kids are gone and out of the house, and they see somebody that they loved desperately 25 or 30 years ago, but they now have nothing in common with. And the phenomenon is called graying divorce where parents fall in love, have kids, raise the kids, and then they just break up. And you see, we have to make sure, we have to make sure that that doesn't happen. We have to make sure we protect the proper family order. Well, the third thing is, you have to begin with the end in mind. I love this verse in 3 John chapter 4. It says this. It says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking with the Lord. You know, as a parent, don't you love it um, when you are somewhere and you can see your kids doing the right thing? Don't you love that? You're like, yeah. But you know what? The Bible doesn't say that we can see our kids. What's it say? We can hear. Don't you love it even more when somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I just have to brag on your child. They did this, or I saw them do this, or they, they reached out to this child, and it, it just does our heart well because we have to realize, we have to realize that our kids are someday going to be on their own. And we have to begin with the end in mind. And what is that end? That's what's important for us to remember. Because, you see, I believe a lot of us suffer like I do from stock family syndrome, don't we? We want the perfect family. But I believe that God is wise enough to know, and He is, that there's no one perfect but His Son, Jesus, and we can't do this. You see, I believe instead of a perfect picture, God is trying to write a bigger story for us. I believe in our families every single day, a little pa another page is being written about what God can do in a family. And some of those pages are of great days, but a lot of those pages are of not so great days. They're covered with tears. 
They're filled with pain. Because we don't have perfect families because no one in our family is perfect. But I believe that God is saying, you know what? I'm the kind of God who wants to write an epic story about what I can do in a family. A family that's far from perfect. A family that messes up all the time. But a family that overcomes. Aren't you glad we have a God like that? Because I want to tell you, as a mom and as a dad, you can clap. Go ahead and clap. Come on. Aren't you glad we serve a God like that? Because I believe as parents, we will never live up to this and live a life of frustration. But if we can give credit to God and see what he was doing and see the epic story that he is writing, it will change our families forever. I also believe that for each of us individually, we like to come to church and put on our best, don't we? How are you doing? Oh, going great. Have you, ever been, have you ever been like this? You're driving in the minivan and you've had a rough morning with the kids. You know, they didn't, they, they didn't get the right shoes on. They were running late. You know, everything just broke down. And you find yourself going, all right, you know, you're in the car like this. And you pull in on the church parking lot. All right, kids, we're at church. Everybody smile. You ever been there? Me either. I've never been there, okay? Because we, we want to live up to this picture. And I believe that God is saying, no, you're not perfect. But I want to write an epic story of what I can do in your life of overcoming. You know, I would say there's a few people here this morning that maybe you um, haven't been in church for a while. Maybe you got invited because you heard that we were talking about parenting and you go, I need some help. <laughs> Hopefully I helped. Um, but you realize in your life that you can never measure up. You've made mistakes and you have a track record that is far from perfect. And here's what I want you to hear. God wants to write your story. It's not a perfect story. There's some pages that are filled with pain and some, some pages filled with tears. But God's a God who loves you no matter what. And he wants to continue to walk with you. And so I want to give you the opportunity to become a part of God's crazy, messed up, imperfect, dysfunctional but forgiven family. So would you bow your heads with me? And if this is a day when you decide you want to accept God, I want you to pray with me. Father God, we love you so much. And I thank you that you realize our imperfection. But instead of pushing us away or condemning us, you love us and you forgive us. And God, for those that are here today that don't know you, I would pray that this would be a moment where they could take a step across the line and accept you. This would be a brand new chapter in the story that you're writing in their book. And I want to ask those of you here today that are in that situation to pray with me. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. God, I thank you that Jesus' blood and his sacrifice can forgive me of my sins. Father, as a result of that, I want to give you my heart. I want to turn the page and make this a brand new chapter in the story that you are writing and accept your gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's a tradition here at Emmanuel to celebrate those decisions. So church family, let's celebrate those who just made that decision.
And those of you that made a decision, we want to encourage you to go back to the tables back here because we want to give you a gift. And the gift is a one year through the New Testament Bible where if you read just five minutes a day, you can read all the way through the New Testament and you can get God's story, his amazing story of how much he loves mankind. And if you have questions, there are people there who are able to help you. Um, so for those of you who made the decision, we are super excited. Hey, I want to tell you, thank you for allowing Jill and I to be here for these last two weeks and, and be with you guys. We love the Emmanuel Church family, and we are glad that you are part of it. Um, but I want to say something to you. Next week, your senior pastor, Danny, is coming back. It is absolutely a can't-miss weekend. God has been working on his heart for the last six weeks. He's been sequestered away from his church family, and he is going to come back off of his sabbatical, and he is going to be ready to go to share with you what God's love. It's going to be drinking from a fire hose, okay? I mean, you do not want to miss what God is going to do. And I know that he misses you, but you know what? I know that you're missing him, and you will welcome him back. So Emmanuel Church family, thank you for being here this morning. Have a great week.